Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, when it comes to the convoy matters, what was done right and what can we learn for the future? We'll talk about that. Despite new allegations and more damning updates from the Hockey Canada scandal, board members defend the organization leaders and ignore the calls for an overhaul. McIntosh Ross, who's an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western University, will join us to talk about that. And in this current economy, many young Canadians are putting off buying a new home. What's going to happen there? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So many other things are happening in Ottawa these days. So also is the inquiry uh, about the Freedom Convoy and the response to this. This, of course, goes back to what happened in Ottawa. The Truckers Convoy, the Freedom Convoy, call it what you will. Uh, But it occupied downtown Ottawa for the longest time, crippled and in many cases intimidated many of the residents there. And uh, this inquiry is supposed to be digging up exactly what happened and why it happened. And uh, one of the questions clearly uh, that especially the opposition MPs would like to get out of this is uh, why the government uh, did what they did uh, with the move that they made over the, uh, the the whole period of that. And, of course, the invo- invocation of the Emergencies Act, which ultimately uh, seemed to have brought the whole thing to a conclusion. So what's going to happen next? Uh, the, the word we got today is that the prime minister and members of his cabinet, some of his members of the cabinet, are going to be uh, asked to testify at this situation. What are we going to hear? Or maybe, more importantly, what won't we hear from them? Uh, to get some perspective on this, I want to bring Michael Kepka into the conversation. Michael is a, uh, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. As a matter of fact, he is, he's writing a book uh, about this convoy. Uh, Michael, first of all, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks again, Bill. I, I think I mentioned this before. During that weekend, we were out of town, my wife, so we were kind of locked into a hotel because the weather was lousy. So I'm watching this like 24-7. I was riveted to the TV. And I know you were on time and time again with your observations about what was going on. Uh, because as it was happening, Michael, one of the concerns a lot of us had is, uh, what are we watching here? Is this a protest? Is this an insurrection? Uh, you know, the average person can't really make that determination. Is, is this inquiry going to do that for us? That's exactly what the inquiry needs to do. What we were watching was basically a protest layered on top of an insurrection. We don't actually know the size of the insurrection, how many people had bad intentions for democracy, how many people were trying to recruit others who had come down for a protest about COVID-19 into those further corners of the far right. This is what the inquiry has to get to the bottom of. We all have very hot opinions about the subject across Canada. Now we need the evidence. We need to get through the arguing and get down to what actually happened. Because we're getting, I mean, a lot of the stuff, as you mentioned, uh, I can still remember vividly as as this was happening, a lot of these issues were conflated. Uh, And, you know, we had the people that identified themselves as the organizers of this, uh, calling for the overthrow of the government, uh, that the, the prime minister should be booted out and the governor general and these people in this organization uh, would take over governing the country. That kind of sounds like insurrection, not just protest. But there were others there that said, no, 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 it wasn't like that at all. So uh, I guess it's one of these age-old questions, who speaks for whom here? That's the difficulty when we talk about groups that are opposed to the state They're not an organized movement or one organization. In Canada, we have a number of cells across the country. They're largely independent from each other. Sometimes they come together around certain issues when it suits them. Um, For example, around COVID-19, it was a great opportunity for them to unify the message around one thing that people easily understood, that people were excited about and upset about. 
And while you're there, you sort of come for the protest and hopefully from their perspective, you stay to listen to more of the more radical ideology. So we've got to get a better sense of the size of the radical movement below or beneath the protest. I've been someone who said it's quite a lot larger than Canadians may assume. We have thought of this as being an American problem with the Proud Boys and all manner of uh, white supremacist movements, maybe an Eastern European problem. It is also a Canadian problem, and it's worse than most of us think. Or most, maybe it's worse than most of us want to admit. Uh, that could be an element too. It, it comes into mindset because the, even from what we know so far, Michael, it's there seems to be pretty strong evidence, if not you know conclusive evidence, uh, that some of those groups you mentioned had some part in this. Whether they were you know the, the driving force of it, uh, to be determined. But but they were there. I, I don't know if they were hangers on to what something that was organized by somebody else. I mean, there's a lot of questions here about who was involved and what their motivations were. Well, even when we talk about the leadership, so-called, of the convoy, there are streams of leadership, some of whom had fairly straightforward objectives around COVID-19, others of whom have been planning convoys long before COVID-19 even existed. So that cannot be their primary concern if they were planning convoys to do with things like fuel tariffs, immigration policy, going back five or six years before COVID ever even appeared on the scene. Then there are others who really do have nasty intentions, who are interested in undoing a charter-based system of government to replace it with something that is much more, you can either call it uh, anarchist, or you could call it in some cases local authoritarian, where they are very interested in having a system where might dominates, force dominates, and it forces ideas on other people. How many of them were out there originally organizing it? Probably not many, but these people are opportunistic. They love to get in on a good thing going from their perspective. The Freedom Convoy was a very good thing going for them, and they jumped on it, just as they always do when they have the opportunity. If it's not COVID, it's religion. If it's not religion, it's organized crime. If it's not organized crime, it's state institutions. These people try to get into wherever they see an opportunity to grow their ideology. And when they do, and when they take action on things like this, Michael, uh, where do you draw the line, and maybe more importantly, who draws the line uh, between criminal activity and, and, and protest? Well, the easy answer to that, the easy part of the answer to that is that the federal government should follow the example of places like the United Kingdom, where they have very clear federal legislation that spells out what is legal and what is illegal protest. And the definitions of legal protest are very, very broad. It has everything to do with the freedom of individuals to move around, to say more or less what they like, as long as it's not hate speech or inciting violence. Um, it limits things like operating heavy machinery in certain areas of the city, uh, controlling the flow of traffic or preventing people from using the roadways, um, and from carrying things that can be easily turned into weapons of opportunity, um, such as long flagpoles and whatnot that can be used as, as weapons on, on the sudden. There's no reason that Canada has not developed this type of legislation. We've known we've needed it for a couple of decades and really successions of governments in a way where what happened with the Freedom Convoy on the basis that we've lagged in developing this legislation.
What are we going to learn from the prime minister? I, assuming, I, I, you know, he's he's going to be asked to come in, and apparently we're told he's going to do this voluntarily. And uh, some of the other ministers uh, involved in this too, Christia Freeland, uh, Mandicino, and others like this, because uh, the, the mantra seems to be what's said in the cabinet room stays in the cabinet room. How forthcoming can, can these people be when they testify? They need to be extremely forthcoming this time around, just because this has been such a divisive issue across Canada. I do not expect that the cabinet, when they debated invoking the Emergencies Act versus taking other measures, would have agreed on everything as a body all along the way. I would expect to see cabinet members arguing amongst themselves, raising counter arguments, considering alternatives right up to the last moment. I would be worried if I saw a cabinet that all of a sudden, right from the get-go, wanted to invoke the Emergencies Act as the first measure. I think that the prime minister and cabinet ministers have to treat Canadians as adults and essentially show us the documents and evidence that they used to make their decision, but also show us the records, the minutes of their meetings where alternatives might have been considered. Treat Canadians as adults and show them that it was a difficult decision, probably made to the best of their ability with the evidence that they had, and perhaps some things were overlooked but if you try to cover that up and hide information, in the absence of information, the conspiracy theorists will continue to thrive and circulate stories that are probably far worse than what's contained in cabinet documents. Talk to me, if you could, Michael, since you were there and living this, uh, about the role of, of Ottawa police in this. Uh, uh, they've been chastised uh, you know, for, for not being ready, uh, for not handling this properly. Uh, the, the chief at that time, of course, has, has since resigned and gone on. Uh, but but there's always going to be some criticism, and I guess even during this commission and the hearings there, about their actions or inactions in situations like this. Uh, did they control the situation? Did they inflame the situation? That has to be, I think, part of the conversation, doesn't it? That's a huge part of it. The entire purpose of the uh, provision in the Emergencies Act to hold an inquiry is to inquire into the entire sequence of events at every level of security agency and government that led to collapse so that we learn something from the process. What went wrong in local policing, policing governance, municipal, provincial, and federal government, so that we never again invoke the Emergencies Act for the same reason. We learn how and why the civil power broke down. We fix it so that next time, if ever something similar were to happen, our existing ordinary civil institutions, including the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial Police, the Provincial Police Services in Canada, and the RCMP, CSIS, etc., are ready to assume their responsibilities and act with decisiveness. How do you take the politics out of this? I mean, you know, the, the opposition MPs, of course, are crying for blood, and their focus is on the government. They're not much concerned about what Ottawa police or anybody else was doing. Uh, they see there's some political hay to be made out of this. Uh, but, but, and, and they may well be, depending on what the conclusions are after all this is said and done. But at the same time, you, you need to focus, as you mentioned, on so many different elements of this, which are contributory to what we actually saw happening, especially after the Emergencies Act was was employed and, and all of a sudden they started to leave. I mean, this, that there's so much to cover here, and it seems as if certain people watching this right now have their own special interest and they only want to focus on one area. Well, that's the huge problem, is that the battle lines politically have already been drawn around this before the inquiry was done. 
Now, politicians will do what politicians will do. If they see that there's votes to be gained by taking a position on an issue, they that's what they do. Um, obviously, Mr. Paul Vierre has come out in support of the of the trucker dimension of the Freedom Convoy. He's gotten into a little bit of hot water for who he has been photographed with and consorted with at different times. The Liberals are obviously standing firmly by their decision. We can't really wiggle back from that now. Once we have this inquiry and we have the information, those who have taken strong positions will have to wear those decisions, as they should. If the government made mistakes, they must own those mistakes. If the opposition has consorted with the wrong people, they're going to have to wear that. And I would say it would be a good thing. It would then give them the opportunity to say, we were wrong on either side, and here's what we intend to do moving forward. Again, it's very difficult through a commission of inquiry not to treat the public as adults because it functions a lot more like court proceedings. You can't just yell and scream and interrupt as we see in the House of Commons these days and confuse everybody with multiple arguments at the same time. It works like a courtroom, sequential, develop the argument, review the evidence, wait for your turn to speak. It will treat the Canadian public as adults and the government and opposition will have to respond as adults to the results of this inquiry. And very, I, I know we're just about out of time, but I think it's an interesting point. And I wanted to get your read on this. Uh, there are a number of people that have been given standing in this in this particular uh, investigation, uh, and I'm hearing that they may actually be able to cross-examine some of the witnesses, maybe even including the prime minister. That should be a rather interesting uh, event. That would be very important. And for example. One of the strangest things that happened was uh, the Ottawa Police Service and Peter Slowly kept saying they had not been given the resources they needed from the federal government. The federal minister at the time, Bill Blair, said that the OPS had been given everything that they needed. So can you imagine a situation where Peter Slowly, who has the special standing status, was able to directly ask that question of the minister? There's no wiggle room there. Canadians would get an answer. Uh, I'm looking forward to your book. Uh, as I say, for those of us that uh, this is still fresh in our minds, and the inquiry certainly, I think, rekindled a lot of the interest in this, uh, because as you've mentioned in previous discussions with us, there are some long-term ramifications uh, to what's going to be uncovered in this thing, too. I'd love to talk to you about it as this unfolds, but thanks so much for the time today, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thank you kindly. It's uh, Professor Michael Kempka from the uh, University of Ottawa. He's a professor of criminology, and as I mentioned, as we watch the coverage uh, during that weekend, uh, Michael was a constant guest on, on all the networks, as a matter of fact, kind of the go-to guy to give us some perspective on what was happening and why, and uh, the, the legal aspects of it as well. And I always enjoy those conversations with Michael. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I watched uh, part of the hearing yesterday, the Hockey Canada hearing in front of the uh, the parliamentary committee. And I, I, and I got to tell you, I was shocked at the arrogance of the board members, uh, the, the attitude that they took toward this whole thing is if, hey, there's nothing to see here. We're just doing a great job. And federal politicians from all parties are at a loss as to how Hockey Canada's board is moving forward with its CEO amid this saga of sexual assault claims surrounding the organization. Uh, yesterday, uh, the board doubled down on uh, the support for the CEO, especially the acting chair, as uh, she talked to the committee. Global's Kyle Benning has the details. Hockey Canada Interim Board Chair Andrea Skinner faced a parliamentary committee grilling her about the organization's decision to keep hold of its executive team. Calls for top brass to be fired have grown louder 
following a Globe and Mail investigation that found a second fund from registration fees that could be used for sexual assault claims. NDP MP Peter Julian says Skinner doesn't see what many Canadians are frustrated by. The fact that the board chair doesn't recognize that Hockey Canada is in a crisis and that there is a complete lack of stability is something that uh, I find astounding. Skinner says the fund is not a Hockey Canada asset and has not been used for a sexual assault claim. According to the Globe report, an affidavit of Hockey Canada's chief financial officer said the fund could be used for those kinds of claims. Kyle Benning, Global News. So where are we going on this and uh, and what are these MPs going to do with uh, the information that they've been gathering over the last little while? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, McIntosh Ross, Assistant Professor of Kinesiology at Western University. Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, breaking news, I guess, of this morning uh, from uh, uh, Hockey Quebec, who have now cut ties with Hockey Canada in wake of these allegations. Uh, they said in a statement here that uh, Quebec, Hockey Quebec has uh, no confidence in the ability of Hockey Canada to act effectively to change the culture of hockey with the structure in place as it is right now. Uh, can we expect, Professor, other uh, hockey agencies to follow suit? I think so. I think they'll, I think they'll all ultimately uh, break ties with Hockey Canada uh, now that the first foot has fallen, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll all go and uh, really put the pressure on Hockey Canada for change. Because without, without all of that money coming in, all of the registration fees from the provinces, you can't have these kinds of slush funds to, to handle sexual assault cases. As, as we watched yesterday, and just mentioned, I mentioned this in my commentary at 8.10 this morning on CHML too, uh, the, the revelations about what's going on in the second fund were, were troubling enough. Uh, but were you surprised by the attitude of the members of the board that were there yesterday? I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, there was there was a little bit of a a heads up before the hearing that they were going to take a very defensive tone that they were going to stick together and uh, you know they, in their own their own meeting minutes they were talking about you know going on the offensive uh, not being neutral uh, which to me suggests that they completely missed the point. It, it's not really uh, about them um that they're painting themselves as the victim somehow of the media and of commentators they're not the victim the victims are the people who were sexually assaulted by hockey players and and the rest of canada seems to get that um but they're sticking together in a way that's reminiscent of you know, something you would see in a courtroom where you know there's multiple defendants and they're not going to rat on each other um it, it's really disturbing well, yeah, and this is the story, and they're sticking to it. And I, I agree with you. I think their focus yesterday was, uh, you guys are picking on us. You know, it was all about them. Uh, you know, the, the media and, and the parliamentary committee are picking on us, and we're doing the best job. Remember, they, they even graded themselves, and each one of the board members yeah. gave themselves an A for it and said, we're doing a great job here. Yeah, it's, it's I don't even know what to say at this point. They're, they're so disconnected from reality that... Um, you know, we could keep on grilling them, but I don't think they're they're going to budge. They're just going to keep on on doing this. So we need we need something a little bit stronger, maybe a judicial inquiry to to bring things to light, um, because they are not going to say that they they are in the wrong. Um, you know, they're even rolling out arguments about trying to protect the victims, which it, it's you know in Canada we do have a very flawed system uh, for handling sexual assault cases in our courts, and it does put victims 
through a lot of stress and hardship. Uh, but I feel like they just picked up on that after you know some of the initial hearings and then slid it into their argument later to try to make themselves look like the good guys uh, when you know they quite clearly are not. They were doing it to protect themselves. They were doing it to protect Hockey Canada. I don't even think they really care about the players all that much, um, so much as they care about uh, making sure all of their jobs are safe. Well, and and that's a, a different argument, but I think it's certainly tied into this about non-disclosure agreements. And I know that in light of that first revelation about the uh, the incident that happened in London uh, some years ago, uh, you know, there's some concern now about making uh, you know, and non-disclosure agreements illegal in circumstances like that. We're not there yet, so and it yeah. was there. But you're, you're absolutely right, though, Professor. I mean, they say we're trying to protect the, the victim here. Uh, well, they're silencing the victim with the check, but, you know, it's, it's to protect them as well. And I, I think everybody sees through that veneer. But I, I just found it astounding that they would take this sort of an attitude uh, about what's going on. And, and your point's well taken. Uh, what about the, the alleged perpetrators here? I mean, they skate away with nothing. I mean, they don't want to investigate them. I, I mean, she did, Skinner did say, well, yeah, finally, London police are investigating this. Well, yeah, that's because it took this long because they yeah. were not forthcoming with information. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, if you did care about the victims, there there would be some kind of repercussions uh, for the alleged uh, hockey players who, who, who committed the assaults. There, there was no repercussions for them at all. So... How can you stand in front of Canada and say that uh, and expect us to take you seriously? Uh, are hockey players somehow immune to this kind of, you know, punishment and uh, responsibility uh, just because they play hockey at a very high level, uh, whereas the rest of us are not? Because that they were also making arguments about, you know, this is a societal problem. Well, in society, uh, at the very least, somebody is going to be in the newspaper or something for what they're accused uh, of doing, even if they go to court and the evidence, which often is the case because the courts can't, can't navigate these cases very well. And the, and the evidence is often problematic um, that they, they're, they're not even getting that there's, there's nothing like they are just completely free uh, to go off and make millions of dollars um, with, with no kind of blowback at all. And, and and that's I think is something that upset an awful lot of us. And you have to wonder uh, with the revelation the second fund was set up. Now they they're arguing now uh, they're, they're saying, well, no, 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 that was for people that may come back with injuries. Uh, you know, some years down the road, a knee injury or something like this, and and try to get action there. And I've I've talked to a number of people in the industry yeah. that say, well, look, that that's not going to happen. Okay, no. <laughs> uh, that's bogus. Uh, it, there's there's a, a a time period for anybody that has an injury like that to make a claim, uh, but not with sexual assault. So I'm, the fact that they set up the, the the second fund, though, Professor, indicates that that this is a, maybe a lot bigger than a lot of us even thought it was. Yeah, and we can't trust them, right? We they haven't been transparent this whole time. So uh, who knows how far this goes, or how how much more there is to know? Um, there's no reason to trust them at this point. Yeah, uh, they maintain their innocence. And I, I, I agree with you. The point that they made about, well, this is a societal problem. And Andrea uh, Skinner, the, uh, the the interim chair, was talking about that. She says, well, you know, this happens in other sports, too. There's, she even tried to insinuate that, well, it happens in politics. Look at that senator that got charged. Uh, he got booted out of the Senate uh, for, for those accusations. Uh, you know, in other words, there were repercussions for that. And, and 
the other element to this is, yes, it does happen in other sports. Yes, it is a societal problem, but it's happening right now in your organization and you did nothing. And, and they just kind of glaze over when you, when you put it that way to them. Yeah, just because other people are doing wrong doesn't mean that it's okay for you to do wrong. Um, if that was the way society functioned, it'd be chaos all the time. Um, so, yeah, I think everybody's already poked holes through that argument. Um, and also, it's it's not every other organization. Other organizations do not have the volume of group assaults that Hockey Canada has. And, and that's just the way it is. And they need to come to terms with that and try to figure out why it is um, and how this culture is being created and perpetuated. I have a pretty good idea, considering that they cover it up all the time and that there's no repercussions for anyone's actions. Um, that, that's a pretty bad step in the wrong direction. Um, but, you know, they need to come to terms with that and admit it, and all of them need to go. They're all complicit in this. It, it showed, you know, they're brutally honest, if nothing else, um, with with their own, you know, lack of concern for the victims and lack of concern for the, you know, future hockey players of Canada and, and the culture within uh, Hockey Canada. Uh, yesterday and if that showed us anything it's that none of them can stay if we want there to be change yet uh chair skinner said you know if, if we elect everybody go it could have a huge detrimental effect to, to minor hockey uh, I, I i would suggest professor if they stay it could have a huge detrimental yeah. effect to minor hockey i mean the die has been cast here it would have zero impact on minor hockey uh, that's just a scare tactic they were trying to use uh, the vast majority of, of hockey operates on volunteers at the community level. Uh, hockey Canada has very little to do with it. Talk to us about the root problems here. The fact that this is going on, and, and there have been some cases that have received an awful lot of publicity. The Graham James situation, of course, yep. with Sheldon Kennedy, and of course, uh, so many other uh, high-profile hockey players that have come forward and, and talked about their past experiences, the traumatic experiences that they've all... Uh, Theo Fleury is another one that comes to mind <laughs> in situations like this. Is, is there in your mind, a systemic problem within the organizations? Uh, is, is it a problem of vetting? I mean, what, what, what's happening here and why does it continue? I think there's a, a lot of problems. And uh, so I guess you would say it's systemic because there's a breakdown somewhere between uh, even just reporting these things. Um, Hockey Canada, um, you know, is responsible for having these things investigated. But then Sport Canada came and said, well, we don't really have a way to hold them to that. Um, so there's a breakdown there. Um, we have a safe sport mechanism coming um, relatively soon, which could help. But at the same time, it, it's funded by Sport Canada. Um, it's under the same umbrella. So I, I would hope that there'd be some kind of third-party independent investigation, not just to Hockey Canada, but of the whole system, because it needs to be revamped with the athlete's uh, safety and the safety of Canadians in mind. You know, think bigger than are we going to win or lose think are we doing things ethically and morally because uh, <laughs> the reality here and uh, hockey parents i think can all tune into this uh the, the, the fact is is the overwhelming majority of of young people that are playing hockey these days are not going to go and play professional they're not going to make it in the nhl they're not going to make it on the national team men's or women's no. uh they're there just to have fun and, and to you know develop their skills and some may somewhat but i mean the reality here is that there has to be an experience for them here and and this has been sullied now hasn't it i i think so i think every hockey parent is asking some very hard questions right now especially after yesterday because yesterday it was it was a real 
eye-opener to just how far they're willing to go to try to make themselves the victim and not take any blame at all. Um, which I think a lot of hockey parents would look and think, okay, they're going to be contrite. They're going to hopefully, you know, make some changes, what a normal organization would do, uh, but they're not. They're they're just rolling forward like this is not a big deal, which for parents, when your kids are being molded within a sport that these are the people who sit at the very top, that's kind of terrifying. Like I have a six-year-old who we're, we're going to start in hockey soon. I didn't put him in younger because I do worry about hockey culture quite a bit. I played hockey my whole life, but, um, you know, there's a lot of bad experiences that I don't want him to experience. And uh, I want him to be of an age where he can see things and say, okay, I'm not, that's not okay. Um, But now, again, after yesterday, it's like how many parents feel like me and are thinking maybe we go play something else uh, where he can have fun, where I don't have to worry about this ridiculously toxic culture of hazing sexual assault um you know also you know the lack of accountability all these things you hope you know accountability responsibility leadership these kinds of things you hope sport will incubate in your kid they're completely absent at hockey canada so how how can we in good conscience put our kids in there well, and your points are all well taken, and I think a lot of parents are feeling the same way that you do, and, and probably did before, because we've all heard these stories anecdotally yeah. about things like hazings and, 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 and physical and mental abuse in some situations as well, and, and the mantra seemed to be, you know, keep your mouth shut, you know, you don't, don't ruin it for everybody else, uh, you know, don't bring any accusations, that, that guy's been coaching for years, you know, it, you're going to ruin it for everybody, so there, there, there's pressure here not to do something about it, and, and that has to be changed, I would think. Yeah, we're putting winning above everything else. You know, the well-being of kids, the well-being of young adults. Um, I don't, I don't know how we weed that out of of sport. It was a huge problem uh, back in the nineteen eighties. At least they said it was a huge problem, and that, and that we never really made any changes based on the Dubbing Commission, which was obviously a result of uh, the uh, doping scandal at the nineteen eighty eight Seoul Olympics. But they said that we were we were too focused on medals, we were too focused on competitiveness, and we weren't focused on the kind of values that sport could possibly bring to kids and young adults, and, and adults for that matter. But here we are again, and in my mind, this is far worse than doping. This is, this is horrific. Well, as you say, it can be, you know, in so many different ways, physical, mental abuse, and, and misuse of funds, frankly. I mean, you're, you're a hockey dad. Uh, you know, how do you think parents feel right now to figure, you know, first of all, to register your child in hockey is not cheap, okay? It costs you a few bucks. Uh, and to know that, hey, that money was supposed to go into, you know, improving the, the, the hockey league, the federation, you know, everything. And instead, no, they're using it to, as hush money to keep these sexual assault charges quiet. Yeah, well, I'm not a hockey dad yet, but... Um, well, you're getting there. Getting there, yeah. Uh, no, I'd be disgusted and uh, thinking about taking my child somewhere else. But at the same time, you know, hopefully all these provincial organizations just attach themselves and then we get enough pressure on Hockey Canada to make meaningful change and we get new people in charge. There needs to be way more women involved uh, in Hockey Canada, no doubt about it. There needs to be more diversity on the board. Um, they kept on saying, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to run Hockey Canada? This is Canada. We have thousands of people who can do that 
we know hockey. We know how to play hockey. We know how to manage hockey. And most of us have done it on a volunteer level at some point in our life. Um, and then we have all kinds of programs around the nation for sport management. We have no shortage of people who can come in and do a much better job of running Hockey Canada than is currently going on. If there had been even a smidgen of contrition there yesterday, uh, there might have been an argument to be made that, okay, they've admitted it uh, and, and we can move on and try to fix this. Not unlike, remember, the the, the, the inquiry into the sexual assault in the military for years and years. I mean, yep. finally, you know, the military said, you know what, you're right. We've been screwing this up for years. We're going to do something about it. These guys just seem oblivious to it. It's a, you know, it's they're part of the problem and they don't seem to want to see that. Nope, nope. They're protecting themselves and their colleagues and their jobs, and they don't seem to really care uh, about anything else at this point. They say they care about hockey. They don't care about hockey. They don't care about the victims. They don't care about hockey players. They're being selfish, uh, and they're, they're going to protect their jobs to the bitter end. Sad commentary. Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Take care. That's uh, Professor McIntosh Ross, uh, Ross rather, from uh, uh, Western University and soon to be a hockey dad, as he said, with his young guy. Uh, and I, I, the, the Parliamentary Committee, we just want to mention here, they do not have the authority to change any of the things with Hockey Canada right now. Uh, but the organizations themselves, as you say, Hockey Quebec has dropped out and said, we're not going to be part of that body anymore. And uh, money talks. I mean, let's face it, you know, the federal government can withhold funds. Uh, these uh, many, many uh, sponsorships that, that, that have dropped off right now, they have to answer some hard questions about this too. So this isn't over, not by a long shot. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the housing market here and a study that has uh, come out, which I think reaffirms uh, what a lot of people are living right now and experiencing. High inflation rates, uh, high interest rates these days. The survey has basically concluded that about one in five Canadians say they are putting off buying a home. It's a rather depressing time for people that are looking for home ownership or to get into the game at all. So what's happening? How long is it going to last and what effect is it going to have on the market? Our next guest is going to address all of those problems. Uh, Mike Heddle is a Hamilton-based broker with Royal LePage State Realty. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's nice to hear you too, Bill. Let me ask you something, Mike. You've been in the biz for a long time. When you see reports like this, are you, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I mean, I mean, this has been a great couple of years for the real estate market. And uh, I, has the bubble burst here? Well, I, I think, you, you know, uh, I can go back to I got licensed in the early 2000s and, and uh, I read articles about the bubble bursting, um, you know, for, for 20 years almost. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing is a rebalancing with, within the market. And, and there's certainly some indicators or some contributors to that. The major being, uh, you know, these rising interest rates. And uh, the, the recent study done by Royal LePage here, uh, you know, indicates and, and suggests that, you know, roughly 20% of Canadians have um, shifted their, their attention and, and perhaps put it, put making a move uh, on hold. And, and the biggest portion of that demographic, the 18 to 34 year olds, about 40% of them said that, you know, that they're going to have to maybe put, um, you know, acquiring a home on hold. And, and that demographic is presumably, uh, you know, that first time um, buyer demographic. So yeah, here locally in Hamilton, you know, we've seen a real run up in, in pricing. Um, but I think the bigger story is, is kind of, you know, overall, uh, you know, inflation and, and cost of living. And although we 
we've seen some pullback in our average pricing here uh, as of late, kind of the, the, the peak being February or March, um, you know, we've seen a re- rebalancing of the market. And, and that 30% appreciation that we are seeing year over year, you know, isn't healthy for, an, for anyone. So, you know, the, the, I think the underlying story uh, behind this survey continues to be that, you know, good news, you started the segue out by saying that, you know, Canadians want to get into home ownership. Uh, it is the Canadian dream. And those millennials, that millennial demographic, uh, you know, still roughly 60% of them, you know, do have that dream and believe that they will uh, own a home in the future. But how, how tough is it for these people these days when you look at the realities here? And, you know, as I say, if you were selling a house over the last couple of years, you're a happy camper. I mean, you, you made tons of money on this. Uh, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is, well, you're going to pay tons of money for the next house you're going to move into. But yeah. for, for the first-time buyers especially, Mike, that was rough, and the prices were just off the charts, and they figured, okay, fine, we're going to wait. Well, the good news is for those people, the prices are starting to come down, but interest rates are going up. So, I mean, which devil do you want to deal with here? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I, I mean, although we've seen a pullback or, or you know, a rebalancing in, in the marketplace, uh, you know, sellers' expectations uh, are slowly <laughs> catching up with with the reality. Um, I love the way you you put that. Um, you, you know, it was great if you were a seller. Well, most sellers do have to buy, um, so you know they were getting. Getting hit on the other side of, of the, the purchase, you know, with these rising prices, unless you're moving to, you know, the East Coast where, where prices, uh, you know, your dollar is going to go much further. So, you know, I, I think kind of the underlying story behind this recent study is, is what we're all feeling, you know, is a squeeze on, um, you know, the cost of goods and, and housing being, you know, a big portion of that for most of us, whether it's ownership or rent, you know, with, with many of these buyers being pulled out of the purchase market, it's driving them into the rental market and, and the rental market is a strong landlord's market. You know, rental prices are escalating at a rate that I haven't seen, um, you know, in, in my 20 year career. Well, and that's the problem. And I think you just hit on something, uh, you know, unaffor- you know, it's not affordable. So, you know, in bygone days, you'd say, you know, maybe you're going to have to look outside the city. Uh, now you're saying, hey, have you ever been to New Brunswick? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the enormity of just how widespread this is right now. It's got to be yeah, frustrating for it, guys it, like you. It, it is. I, I mean, you know, one of the unique things about our region here in Hamilton is is we live, you know, within the Golden Horseshoe, which is the economic engine behind the country. It, it attracts one in three new immigrants. You know, it, it really is the driving force. Uh, you know, we've got a huge populace within a 100-kilometer driving radius, radius of us. My sister lives in PEI, and she has for, for a decade and a half and sure purchasing power goes much further out there but you're diff- you're into a different uh, uh, economy and, and depending on what stage of life you're in you know perhaps retirement may make sense uh, you know to, to move or to as we often say you know drive until you qualify and, and once upon a time that was around Lake Ontario into St. Catharines and Niagara and we are seeing a bit of an exodus of, of uh, Ontarians moving to Alberta or uh, you know Calgary or or the east coast. Are you surprised, Mike, how big it's spread and how quickly it's spread too? You know, it used to be a GTA problem. You know, they always talked about, you know, the, the GTA, uh, Vancouver, and, and, and maybe Montreal you could throw in there too. But the rest of the country was a little crazy. But then all of a sudden Hamilton started to bloom and went crazy. Uh, and it's everywhere. I don't know if the pandemic was part of the cause for this. I mean, a lot of people just realized, okay, if I'm going to work remotely, I'm going to buy. Because I see, you know, we've got a lot of connections yep. up in the Blue Mountain Collingwood area. Uh, sure. And good luck trying to get a place up there. I mean, those prices have gone up. And every time we go up there, there's another housing development being built. 
Well, I, I think, you know, my background is, is trained in economics, and, and I think part of the challenge is, is really low borrowing costs. You know, we're back up to posted yeah. borrowing costs of about 5.5%. You, you know, we were we were able to purchase or borrow money, you know, for much less than, than the 2% inflation. And, and when, you know, you print money and when you make borrowing cheap, uh, you increase the money supply, and, and the long-term effects are, are that of what we're seeing, not only in housing, but, you know, gas prices at the pumps and, uh, you know, in, in grocery stores. And and I guess my advice, you know, whether certainly being a real estate broker, um, you know, I'm an expert in, in real estate, but my advice is to get your household budget in order, um, you know, making sure that, you know, maybe you're canceling some of those subscriptions that we all, uh, you know, find on our credit card build, uh, uh, you know, un, unknowingly, uh, you know, really making sure that, we, that we've got our, our financial house in order or a monthly budget in order, you know, is, is a great starting point to get into home ownership and and you know I'm, I'm optimistic that hopefully we see some some downward pressure although you know we're hearing rates are are going to continue to rise throughout the year I think that's going to continue to put some pressure on certainly the, the first-time buyer uh, pool but getting into the rental market isn't much easier well that's the problem I've noticed too and I've talked to people that are doing just what you described all right let's let's you know put this off I still want to own a house some point but we'll rent now uh <laughs> And then they get sticker shock when they find out how much it costs to rent. Yes, well, we we do see some some multi dwelling does it, like, living. Does it all come down to does it all come down to supply? Well, there's a number of factors <laughs> when you get into housing prices. Some of them are like net migration, uh, yeah. you know, average income. Um, you, you know, there's about seven factors. The effect of transportation, those all have impacts on, on real estate values. Supply is one of the big ones, and that continues to be a challenge. You know, so we are still undersupplied despite, you know, being in, in this changing real estate market with values. You know, we, we've got a long-term supply issue with, with housing. And my belief, and it's not just because I'm a broker, uh, when I look at the economics, like my belief is that, that we're going to continue to see, you know, relatively strong housing markets on the long term. And, and I also believe that, you know, getting into home ownership should remain the Canadian dream. You know, good luck owning property in, in Paris <laughs> or, or Greece. I, I mean, most of the world, it's it's unreasonable to to get into home ownership. And, and uh, I'm excited that that remains to be, uh, you know, the Canadian dream, that, that millennials and our youth, I've got, uh, you know, a couple of children, uh, I want them to get into home ownership, you know, when they can and when they can afford it. Well, and then, you know, as somebody who's been doing, and you're in the game, I'm in the game now, you know, as a homeowner, yes. uh, once you're there, it's, it's, there's some mobility that you can, you know, you've got some, you know, you've got some capital, you've got some, some, some credit when you get into this, but that's, that first step is always the most difficult. And it's, it's become a lot more difficult over the last couple of years. But as you mentioned, yeah. I mean, you've been doing this for many, many years now, uh, the market ebbs and flows and, and obviously, sure you know, we're, we're in a bit of a trough right now. Yeah, um, but they don't last the, forever. They don't, and, and I think the pendulum swung so far back in in the spring with undersupply and cheap money to borrow. And, and I I think what we're seeing, you know, because of uh, other you know economic drivers like like borrowing costs going up, the pendulum swung back, and and we're forecasting you know kind of this softer landing as we get into the end of the year and, and next year. So you, you know, yeah, the the market. There's a saying: the market goes up and down all the way up. <laughs> and, and I think if if you're looking to get into home ownership, there are certainly 
certainly many advantages you just talked about. You know, it is a tax haven. It offers forced savings. Um, we're seeing some young buyers get creative in terms of acquiring homes, you know, together or multi-generational homes is a very popular trend. Um, but it, it's, there's, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, you know, it is certainly, there's some some change in consumer confidence and, and the biggest one tends to be around the cost of, of, of living right now, <laughs> not just surrounding housing. Well, and I've talked to people that are in those circumstances, as you say, multi-generational, some are sharing accommodation. I mean, you know, you've got to be flexible and pivot just a little bit. But if I'm one of these, if I'm one of these guys, Mike, and says, you know, I want to be a first time home buyer, Mike, you know, uh, you're the guy, you're going to help me get this done. Uh, We certainly can't do it now. Here's my number. You call me when you think it's a good time. What, (laughs) what, what are you looking for? What barometers are you looking for to say, you know what, I think it's time to jump. I think you can do it now. Is it, is it the affordability? I think affordability, the interest rate is, you know, I remember when I first bought my first home and, and uh, you, you know, I'm in my mid forties, my, my interest rates are where they were today. And I, and I remember getting into a fixed product and rates continue to decline <laughs> from day one. So I think it boils down to affordability, making sure that your household budget is in line with, you know, basic economics, making sure that you're not house poor. Um, you know, one of the nice things about the current market is we're seeing offers where buyers are negotiating price down where buyers can include some conditions to protect themselves and and, and uh, include some of that due diligence that really they should be able to do that the market over the last you know two years two years almost was irrational and, and I use an analogy where if we saw 30 offers on a property it was like a dartboard about 20 or 25 offers were right where value should have been one or two offers were really low and one or two offers were irrationally high maybe 10 15 or 20 percent higher than the bulk of the offers. And and I think, you know, this has contributed to the pendulum swinging back. Um, I think, you know, working with a professional is always key, whether you're filing your taxes or getting legal advice, you know, working with an experienced, qualified real estate broker that knows the market, the local market, I think is always important. And, and I think, you know, I'll circle it back down to affordability. So getting into the market, you know, when it, when it makes economic sense, um, and, and maybe that's with a, a legal in-lot suite um, or something that helps, uh, you know, subsidize some of those carrying costs. Well, and I think we, as you mentioned, we have to be a little more pragmatic about it. I mean, in those crazy days, six, eight months ago, uh, I mean, if you decided to sell, I mean, before the agent even knocked the, the, the sign into the lawn, you were getting 10 offers for the house. Uh, sure. that, that's unrealistic. I mean, I, maybe we're getting back to the way things should have been or normal. Right? But uh, are you still Are you still bullish about the market? On the long-term effect, I am, yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think we're going to see prices, you know, kind of stabilize and, and become balanced. Um, you, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to like real estate and home ownership provides a fundamental need, which is shelter. Uh, it is a tax haven. So any long-term growth is is one of the few tax havens we've got into this country. I would encourage, um, you know, our youth uh, to get into home ownership. There are scenarios where rental does make sense, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for empty nesters or first-time buyers. But, but I think, yeah, you know, some of the takeaway is to speak with a qualified uh, professional that understands you and, and your needs specifically, because those, I call them irrational markets, where people are making firm offers and multiple offers and, and pricing isn't based on any fundamentals like valuation methods. Um, you know, that's what's nice about where I'm seeing the market going to a more logical behavior. And this is most people's largest asset. It should be a large logical decision, uh, you know, when making making a move. 
Uh, Mike, as always, thanks so much for the time today and adding some uh, some pragmatism to some kind of frightening numbers here. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Let's stay in touch as this uh, we ride this out over the next little while. I appreciate it. Thank you, and, and enjoy this lovely weather out there today. <laughs> you betcha. Take it while we can get it. Mike Kettle, Hamilton-based right. uh, broker with uh, Royal LePage State Realty. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.